Have you ever been asked to design or undertake a project, but you or others on your team just didn't see eye to eye in the solution or the direction you were given? Or conversely, have you ever worked on a project where it was going in altogether too many directions and you were trying to achieve way too many goals and objectives and everyone had a slightly different idea of what done looked like? Well, if design is all about finding solutions to a problem, then if you don't align on what the problem really is, then everything else that follows suit probably won't be on the right track. And the end result? Time and resources get burned. Disagreements happen. You have that sinking feeling of not really knowing what the point of the project is. And most importantly, it becomes increasingly more likely that the solution won't even successfully find its audience or fulfill any user needs. Enter the problem statement. The problem statement is the linchpin to everything that follows. It defines what you are working towards and why. As a designer, you are relying on it for a solid foundation and direction. Now, thinking back to the stages of design thinking, the problem statement is the critical component to the define phase. Nielsen Norman Group describes it as a summary of who the user is, their need, and why that need is important to the user. Note that the emphasis is on the human who is using the solution rather than the solution itself. And the focus should be on what you want them to do and achieve. What challenge is it that you want to help them with? What's going to help you gauge if you've indeed solved for it? So it's very metrics focused. Now to make this all a little bit more concrete, let's think through a few local WC examples that are very upfront with their problem statements. First up, we have Providence Healthcare, a healthcare service provider within Vancouver Coastal Health. Their mental health division created an online tour for patients. The website clearly states, we created this tour because some patients told us that at the beginning of their journey, they were anxious about coming in contact with the mental health system. Second up, we have Luna VR, a local startup that created a product, VR Vaccines, intended for the 22% of adults who are scared and stressed from needles. On its website, it states that its purpose is to simulate the standard vaccine procedure so that patients can become more comfortable and less fearful about vaccinations. In both cases, the problem statements focus in on alleviating patient anxiety. And if you visit the websites, you'll notice a few things that are indicators of a good problem statement. First of all, the audience itself is fairly broad, but still well-defined enough to focus in on. Second of all, not only is it easy to understand who is the user and what they're struggling with, but they're both identified very much upfront. Thirdly, because of these two things, it's also easy to determine what the success metrics and evaluation points should be. Reduction in anxiety. And that, in turn, hints at what possible solutions could be. Lastly, both of the respective problem statements have made it into that forward-facing marketing effort that's available on the website. So, put it another way, the best problem statements generally can be constructed and likewise deconstructed to a couple core essentials, the user plus their need plus the why. 
the user should focus more on the human behaviors, expectations, and emotions rather than the demographic or marketing data that we're often handed. Whereas the need and the why focus in on their pain points and the opportunities that those pain points present. You should be able to answer why the user cares about that issue, how it affects their life, what emotion it provokes, and what benefit does the user gain if there might be a better solution at hand. So ideally, all three of these elements, the user, need, and why, would come from your user research efforts. You'll notice that the problem statement does not actually spell out the how or the details of the solution. That comes later in the ideate, prototype, and validate phases. And, as I mentioned, in those phases, you'll be doing that validation where you do do further user research and collect more data. But even in the very early stages of kickoff, you can begin discussing and aligning on who your target audience is and what you think you're solving for. In other words, it's okay to not completely have that research done or even started. You can think of these statements as sort of proto-statements or hypotheses that you can iterate on as you progress through those stages that follow. If you take a look at the links I've included, you'll see that there are some suggestions for how to craft your initial problem statement. You may also find it useful to create an empathy map to keep everyone honest about who the user is and aligning on that. The empathy map usually describes basic attributes of the user, including what they're saying, thinking, feeling, and doing. But the very best empathy maps really take care to describe those user pain points and gains. And that's where there's that natural flow from the empathy map over into the problem statement. Now the problem statement itself should be simple, but the process of getting there is often anything but. Going back to the concepts of goal-directed design and the double diamond approach, a design can benefit from divergent thinking in the very early stages. This is often referred to as brainstorming in sort of common parlance, but it's a rather specific kind of brainstorming. It's one where you're opening up the problem and exploring different lenses and perspectives to explore it, rather than thinking of solutions and features to solve for it. That exploration is known as problem framing. Christopher Alexander, an architect who's very influential to the field of user experience design, comments on the idea of framing by using the example of a tea kettle. If we simply focus on redesigning the form of the kettle, then all we can see is the kettle itself. But if we think of the why or the existence of the kettle, then we begin to see the problem instead as finding a way to heat drinking water for domestic use. By looking at it in this way, we can now see that there could be other methods and means for heating water besides the kettle. So the problem is now shifted from the kettle to these other possibilities and opportunities. And as that presents itself, we can now see or imagine other ways of solving that problem. So for example, it could be something integrated into the sink that delivers hot water on demand, or maybe more unconventionally speaking, could be a solar panel that uses convection to deliver hot water, or maybe there's an intelligent heat exchanger device that delivers it elsewhere in the house. So sometimes it can be tempting to focus in on the form or the product itself 
rather than questioning the need for the product in the first place. But when you question the need, it becomes clearer to see the problem that you're dealing with. So what are some ways of doing that very thing of reframing? Well, a few ideas. Firstly, you could do co-creation activities, maps in particular, like concept maps, empathy maps, journey maps, stakeholder maps, territory maps, anything that helps you visualize and explore the experience over time and from different contexts and perspectives. Secondly, you could compare different types of users by doing things like empathy maps or day in the life of, or even contrasting extreme users who represent radically different types of viewpoints. So for example, the novice versus power user. Thirdly, you could be a contrarian and flip the problem to its opposite. One common technique here is to use the how might we to present the challenge as a question as opposed to a statement. You can also rely on more standard project management techniques such as bullseye diagrams or matrices to help identify and zero in on core problems among the team. Last up, we have five whys, or what I like to think of as channeling your inner four-year-old and continuing to ask why until there's nothing left except for that core problem. So, with all of that behind us now, let's do a little bit of practice. We'll use a classic, which is the elevator problem. So, imagine you've been asked to look into a really slow elevator in a building. The tenants have been complaining about that slowness and are threatening to break their lease if the elevator is not fixed. What do you see as the problem that needs to be solved for here? Write down what you're thinking. Now, did you focus in on the slowness of the elevator? Or was there something else that helped shift your understanding of the problem? If you're curious about how building managers have solved for this, take a look at the article, Are You Solving the Right Problems? and see what they have to say there. So, to wrap things up, I'd like you to think a little bit more deeply about Zach and what he's shared with you today. And alongside that, taking this knowledge of problem statements and reframing. With those things in mind, what do you think you would want to do next? I'm going to talk a bit about what I would do to plan for my discovery workshop and what I would do to prepare. But first, let's start by reviewing some of the things that we know about Zach. We know that he's very hands-on and wants to be extremely involved. He's keen on ideation, perhaps too keen and eager. He's already sending some signals about urgency and being kept in the loop. He's been inspired by that book about design sprints, but has not gone through one yet. And so he might be under the impression that a five-day sprint is concept to completion, rather than rapidly creating a rough prototype. And although he's a self-professed designer, his definition of design could very likely be focused more on the little d side of design rather than big D design. Not to mention, he might not be quite aligned with our definition of goal-directed or human-centered design. So with all this in mind, we can conclude that Zach's goals are likely to be immersed in the design process, contribute ideas and creativity, have continuous momentum, and understand what's happening and when. And to recap our own discovery goals, while we're looking to keep everyone engaged and their motivation high, 
You need to feel out our teams, especially Zach and the state and other stakeholders' understanding of iterative design and get them on board with our process. We need to confirm their goals and understand who they believe their target audience is and why, and determine measurable outcomes that they hope to achieve. Then we need to move on to framing the problem, what we think we're solving for, and then possibly reframe the problem if it seems like it's too narrow and there's some suffering from tunnel vision. Then we list all the possibilities and all ideas and capture them, and we got to move on to aligning on the most promising of those and identifying our biggest questions about them. Then we have to identify how to resolve those questions, that is, what kind of research could we do and who we need to do that research on. And then lastly, we'd also want to talk a bit about final deliverables for the project itself and what's possible and not so possible. Together, all these things would give us a shared sense of purpose and process and next steps without being too prescriptive. I mentioned getting everyone on board with the process. It's always best to know upfront how much of an appetite and understanding your client has about design and user research so that you can anticipate any questions or pushback they might have well in advance of the workshop. So ideally, in the case of Zach, we want to identify what ideas he feels most strongly about so that we could figure out what those biggest research questions might be and what those hypotheses that we'd need to convince him that we'd need to validate. And woven throughout the kickoff activities would be suggestions for possible types of research methods that would help us investigate those open-ended questions, including his ideas, and the cost-benefit to those different approaches. This would help us negotiate what that overall set of activities might be and begin talking about rough timeline and the steps involved to actually be able to execute on them. So for example, if we were talking with Zach about research, we might ask him, well, who's our audience? Do you already have people that meet that audience in terms of demographics and behaviors and expectations? How quickly might we be able to get into contact with them? How likely are we to be able to reach them and schedule them in? And then in turn, how long might it take for us to turn around the results of that research? And also discuss frankly about what happens if our hypotheses turn out to not be entirely accurate. So, phew, that's a lot of ground to cover in one workshop, right? So to recap, in our agenda, we'd need to cover onboarding to the iterative design process, stakeholder goals and success measurements, identifying who we're solving for and what we're solving for, we need to prioritize those ideas in conjunction with developing a problem statement, identify our biggest questions about that problem statement to drive our research plan, and also corral all of our deliverables and commitments. And at the same time, try to make all these discussions as fun and compelling as possible. I would definitely strive to convert at least half of these discussions into hands-on activities. And knowing Zach, and anticipating what his reaction might be, I'd probably lean toward converting the majority of them into activities because that's most likely going to meet his needs the best too. Plus, experiencing the process and seeing it come alive is so much more powerful than being told about the process but being shut out of it. And so you might find the best way to educate Zach and kind of pull him into the momentum of design thinking and human-centered design is to involve him as much as possible from the get-go. 
Now, bear in mind that your discovery workshop isn't just about planning the agenda and sorting out all of the activities. There's even more pre-work. This would include things like a literature review, environmental scan, competitive analysis, possibly drafting some research questions, and maybe doing a loose stakeholder or territory map based on what your knowledge is so far. I probably also begin to think in my own mind about possible research directions or approaches, meaning those methods that I mentioned earlier that I'm going to suggest to the client and make some recommendations around both the pros and cons. Your pre-work is going to help you build your domain knowledge as well as bring some generative ideas into the mix. Now, lastly, don't forget to work with your team to determine who's going to take on what role. Personally, I find it helpful to have everyone rotate through different roles so no one's having to shoulder the entire meeting. It can be a really good idea for everyone to share a common checklist of questions or topics that will be covered in the discovery and to distribute this well in advance alongside the agenda. So hopefully that helps you understand a bit more about how you might prepare for a discovery workshop, some of the topics that you'd want to cover, as well as kind of side things that you'd want to slide into the, uh, the discovery to help bring everyone into alignment and get really excited to jump into the ideation stage.